Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hi, everyone. Hope life is good in weaving land wherever you are listening from. In my book, fall is truly here, which is my favorite season for weaving, for gardening, for weather, just about everything. Did you like it when I featured yarn last week? Drop me a line and let me know. I always love hearing your feedback. This week, I thought I'd hop in to share another staple favorite in my shop, which I love and which I think a lot of you are loving too, and that's linen. Linen is a strong, natural fiber that becomes softer and more supple with use. And the linen in my shop, I source from the oldest flax mill in Lithuania, which is located in the really far north of the country. They've been in business since 1928 and are really experts in creating high quality wet spun linen yarn. And this particular mill has a really beautiful sense of color, which is one of the reasons I started to work with them because there's so many gorgeous options that work well together. So if you wanna learn more about this yarn and maybe try weaving with it yourself, you can go to gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 33 to see some more about it and some free project patterns we created with it. And if you have been afraid of working with linen, you, yes you, now is the time to end that fear. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to Kathy Hattori, the founder of Botanical Colors. Botanical Colors supplies artisans and the textile industry with the materials and know-how to dye textiles in a way that uses less water, is non-toxic, and biodegradable. They sell beautiful quality natural dyes for weavers and makers, and I'm really excited to now be stocking these natural dye kits in my shop. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you on today. Sarah, thank you for having me. Could you start out by introducing yourself and sharing a bit about yourself and your company, Botanical Colors? Yes, I'd be happy to. So my name's Kathy Hottori. I'm the president and founder of Botanical Colors based in Seattle, Washington. And we've been established since 2010. So we're eight years old this year. Um, the company is both an online retailer of natural dyes for artisans and crafters, but also we have a custom dye part of the company where we do custom dyeing for apparel and retail brands, mostly in the United States, but we're now branching out and doing work for other, um, other designers in other countries. So we will look at um, a project with a designer and provide a solution using natural dyes for uh, a line that they're bringing out, um, you know, in the fall, winter or spring, summer seasons. How did you first find your way towards natural dyeing? Um, I first learned about natural dyeing when I took a Navajo weaving class and our teacher encouraged us to forage and figure out what colors would come from the things that we had um, picked. So I would be, um, we had a, an Oregon grape plant um, outside our um, apartment and we weren't allowed to um, cut anything. So I would go out late at night and snip a few leaflets off so that I could try this color and doing that and um, being in a place where there were some eucalyptus and other really interesting plants, I began to see that, uh, you know, what you 
what you experienced as a tree or a bush or a flower or a root was very different than what you would actually get as a color from a plant. And that was very fascinating to me. So I just love that aspect where it, there's something hidden inside of this um, plant matter that with some skill and some luck, you can actually get a really beautiful color. Yeah, absolutely. And how did that path continue for you artistically and later professionally through natural dyeing? Um, so I started dyeing fibers in the mid 80s. And I was really fortunate to learn uh, indigo from Dorothy Miller and John Marshall. And um, I've had a lot of different teachers that were using natural dyes sometimes, but really most of what I learned initially was um, synthetic and acid dyes. And then once natural dyes became more prevalent, then I began to work um, at a natural dye studio. So I did that for about eight years and then branched out on my own in 2010. And what was it that made you decide to branch out on your own and to start selling natural dyes? Um, the other company closed. So it, you know, it was kind of a, um, it was a situation where I just decided that I wanted to continue. I'd had a parallel uh, career in um, technology and was at a moment where it didn't really have much appeal for me anymore. So I thought, oh, now I'm going to just do this. And I always had this idea that okay, you can do this for three years. And if after three years, it doesn't work, you know, you can always go back to doing what you were doing previously in the corporate world. But I really found out that um, the, the more I got into it, and the more I explored and learned that um, the corporate world was never going to be another uh, option for me. So I had to just keep going. And it, you know, it's worked, it's totally worked for me. So I'm glad that I didn't give myself a backdoor hmm. to go back. Hmm. So what were those first few years like? How did you build up your business? I have to thank my corporate background for giving me the ability to do more kind of B2B interactions with prospects. So I was able to speak their language and offer a solution that was different, but still you know, I could answer their questions about technical issues or um, and color issues. So I think that was kind of what I brought to the table that helped keep me in front of brands and apparel because, you know, they're used to a supply chain that has been captive to them and their type of um, work for years, if not longer, right? It's a pretty established path that any brand has in order to get products to market. So offering this alternative really made them think about it and also made them ask a lot of questions. So I had to answer a lot of questions about the dyes, about their performance, about their um, use, about the consumer, you know, and the consumer acceptance that I don't know that a lot of other um technologies that are going into apparel would would necessarily have to answer so that was very good learning for me uh, to be able to do that so that's how that part of the business grew 
in terms of the online and the um, and the retail sales, I think that the awareness of the footprint of apparel was becoming evident to people so that they were seeing that people who were making their clothes were um, sewing and um, manufacturing their clothes in substandard conditions and that was upsetting to consumers. They were seeing that um, factories all over the world were, were putting color on their clothes and that was causing their local water sources and rivers to turn colors that um, was polluting water that people should be able to use and that was upsetting to consumers. So these this series of um, exposés and growing awareness of the actual footprint of conventional manufacturing was causing people to actually ask, wait a minute, what's going on? And I think also a really big driver was the fact that organic food had become very widely accepted. And so people were just looking at their clothing and saying, wait a minute, if I'm purchasing organic fibers, so, you know, to, to try and make an, a positive impact, what kind of color and what kind of finishes and trims are being put on that clothing? And is that, is that beneficial or is that still something that needs to be looked at? and examined and questioned. And so all of those things converged right around the same time. And the consumer just took this quantum leap in awareness about what was going on with their food and their clothing and the environment. And natural dyes provide uh, a very nice, intuitively, um, intuitive solution that is easy for them to grasp because they already see that happening in their um, their food supply. So you have you sell many different kinds of natural dyes from different materials, which I have to imagine are from many different parts of the world. And I'm curious how you think about ethical and sustainable sourcing for your company, because I know that's so important to you. That's a huge issue. And so what I've done and I continue to do is I actually go and visit my suppliers or I'm in pretty good contact. The ones that I don't visit are pretty well established and they have certification and I know that they get um, reviewed by certifying bodies. And when I'm talking about certification, I'm talking about um, organizations that come in and look at the way that the product is grown harvested, processed, and it looks at it from both chem chemical and um, chemical inputs and outputs, as well as social issues. So if it's in, if it's in a developed country where I'm getting the dyes, I rely more on certification from certifying bodies because I know that there's kind of an infrastructure of things that have to be met in order to receive that certification. If it's in a developing country or kind of, uh, and I hate to say that word, if it's in another environment where um, potentially there's fewer environmental regulations, then I actually go and visit. And so I'll spend upwards of three to five days at the location um, 
depending on the manufacturer, will go kind of take a tour of their facility, uh, talk to them about um, their workers, uh, look at where they're growing, um, those kinds of things, so that I actually have a first-hand um, view of what's happening and how the color is produced. And I'm happy to say that in those cases, I've been very, very impressed. So not only are they able to receive the same type of certification that a company that is in um, an area where there's much stricter environmental um, environmental regulation uh, is getting their certification, but it's the same certifying company, if you will, same certifying organization. So they're looking at it both in a, a more developed and stricter envi environmental situation. They're looking at in it at it in a less um, highly regulated situation. They're using the same criteria, and both um, both sources. Uh, qualify and pass. So I feel like it's pretty stringent and it and it works, but I do like to go and visit um, as much as I can. You must have taken some pretty incredible trips to visit people who are making dyes and using dyes. What are some of your favorite places that you've been to? So where I've gone, where I've actually seen them make the dyes, where I think they're doing a beautiful job is... Um, I've been able to go to a couple of labs in Europe. And, you know, of course, being in Europe is always a treat. So, but watching how they're looking at the source of the dye and then seeing how they're taking the dye and looking at it, not just for textile production, but they're also looking at can this be used in um, pharmaceutical? Can this be used in. Uh, food? Can this be used in cosmetics? So they're looking at it for other applications and the methods that they go through to take, you know, literally a field crop and then end up with a, a colorant that's suitable for um, using in cosmetics. That's That's a pretty interesting process because I didn't actually make those connections in my own mind before that, oh, of course you could use it for food if it's safe enough, you know, if it's safe enough from a non-toxic source and they're using non-toxic methods, then it could be a food colorant or it could be um, a cosmetic or body care colorant. Um, so to me, that's been super interesting. So this might be like asking you who your favorite child is, but I am curious if you have a favorite color or dye material that you love to use in your own artistic work. Um, it is like a favorite child. They're all so different. I think my favorite activity is trying to take kind of the dyes that are less um, flashy, if you will. So of course I love the rich reds and the beautiful blues and the deep purples. But sometimes it's really great to take the dyes that are lesser known and to try to see what they will yield and um, the one that I really love to kind of play with especially on protein fibers is the Himalayan rhubarb because it has a um, 
it's very pH sensitive and you can actually use that to an advantage where you can shift the color pretty radically from kind of almost a brick red all the way down to a yellow just by altering the pH with some very simple pH modifiers like cream of tartar for acid to shift it downward and soda ash for the to make it more basic and shift it um, uh, upward and get it redder. So that's a really fun one to play with. And I love the idea of, you know, I like this idea of hidden color, right? That the color, when you look at the plant or when you look at the um, the source, it's not evident that that's what's, what you're going to get the color from. So the idea that even as an as a powdered ready to use extract, there's even more things hidden in it is is really um, alluring hmm. to me. So if you were to give advice to a weaver who is interested in dipping their toe into natural dyeing, but was nervous to get started, what are the first few projects or kinds of dye materials or kinds of yarn that you would recommend starting with? I would say that natural dyes have the strongest affinity to protein fibers. So if you're a weaver who's you're working with wool or silk or alpaca or some sort of protein fiber, um, you're going to get the best results the easiest. I know a lot of weavers use cellulose, linen, and cotton, and those will also dye very well. There's just a little bit more preparation time and preparation steps, so it's why I tend to move towards um, wool or silk first. Um, I would also say that silk in itself, if the weaver is um, open to using it, is pretty much hmm. razzle-dazzle in the dye pot. So the minute you put this, you know, because silk is so beautiful anyway, the minute you put it into the dye pot and you start to see it take up the color, the yarn, um, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty hooked on exactly what these things can do. Um, so if it's possible, protein, but if it's not possible, you'll still get beautiful results from cellulose. And we have instructions on our website for both cellulose and protein fiber preparation, scouring, and mordanting. Great. And I will link to those in the show notes to this episode so people can find this. You mentioned um, mordanting. Can you describe what that mordanting process is for people who might not be familiar with it? And also what kind of mordants you advise people to use? Sure. Um, so mordantine is the actual chemical fixing of the natural dye color to the fiber. So it acts as kind of like a bond. Um, and there's a lot of different mordants that you can use and we will um, always point you to the most um, non-toxic uh, options. So you'll see, we uh, not weavers specifically, but you'll see dyers say that, oh, I use copper on this and I got a great color. And I'm sure you can get great colors from copper, but copper and chrome are heavy metal mordants that are actually um, toxic to humans. And in tiny, tiny trace amounts that we need them to live, yes, but the amount that you're using to mordant is much, much more than a trace amount. And 
they're difficult to dispose of. You actually have to take them in to, um, uh, you know, a disposal, a hazardous disposal place. And most dyers, and certainly any new dyer, typically does not have the setup to be able to successfully handle such a strong mordant. So in that case, we will, uh, and we only recommend the use of, if you're looking for mineral mordants, we only recommend the use of both alum, which can be in the form of um, aluminum sulfate or aluminum acetate, and iron, which can be in the form of um, something as simple as a, a, a jar of rusty nails that's filled with water, all the way to ferrous sulfate. And all of these ingredients have their um, safe use recommendations, and so that's what we recommend. The alum that we have, aluminum sulfate, that we use is a food-grade product, so it is used in food processing. Um, the aluminum acetate is a pharmaceutical product, so again, it's used um, in more of a medicinal um, application, but again, safe use is key for this. And when I say safe use, I mean um, a good dust mask. If you have respiratory um, issues, like I have um, seasonal allergies, so I always use a respirator that's fitted with um, um, dust cartridges, and I follow the use, you know, the guidelines for using that. Um, gloves, and if you're if you're really sensitive, um, even safety goggles. You know, you just don't want to have the powder in the powder form. You just you don't want to have the powders um, enveloping you. So we tend to be overcautious, but I feel like there's so much environmental. Um, there are so many environmental ingredients that are out there now in the environment that we don't have any control of whether or not we're exposed to them, that when you do have control over your exposure, you should always um, protect yourself. And that goes for any of the powder dyes, any of the powdered um, mordants, any of the um, plant mordants that we have, anything that gives you a powder we like to recommend that you use a dust mask. And, uh, you know, even bakers wear dust masks when they're working in bakeries because they're around all that powdery flour um, and it can cause over time, uh, you know, allergic reactions. So we just want to protect the, the user from that. Um, in terms of recommendations, uh, we, so the, there's, also plant mordants, and those plant mordants are generically called tannins. And tannins will work on both cellulose and protein fibers, um, but they do, because they are already have a, a slight color to them, they will impart a base color to the dyed product. And um, for some dyers, this is part of the excitement. For other dyers who want much clearer and cleaner colors, then um, you can also look at alum as an adjunct to your tannin mordantine, and that will help both give you a better um, dye result as well as keeping the colors clear. It's a really helpful 
introduction and I hope that it will encourage people who have been excited to try this out but a little bit nervous to know that there's so much helpful information on your website and that they should just go try it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I have had so many hours of fun just experimenting in my kitchen and in my backyard with different kinds of natural dyes and uh, there's it's it's really just a, a magical thing to work with. So in in addition to selling dyes for artists to use, you also offer consulting for designers um, mm -hmm. who are looking to add natural dyes to their collection. And I'm curious if you could tell me a little more about the kind of companies that you work with and what sorts of dyeing you've been able to help them do on a more industrial scale. The companies that we've been in contact with are um, pretty well recognized brands. And most of them ask that their information is kept, you know, confidential. So I'll speak kind of overall about their process, but many of them are extremely concerned about the footprint of not only what is being used to manufacture the clothing that um, they sell, but also what happens to their clothing after they sell it. And I think most weavers are really familiar with the concept of the rag rug, which was used to um, take clothing that was no longer, you know, able to be used and put it to another use so that you weren't ever wasting clothing or excess fabric. And, uh, and things like quilting, um, you know, rug hooking, rug braiding, all of those traditions came out of the idea of not wasting anything because fabric was so precious. We've moved into an era where fabric and clothing are, you know, they're just, they're way too disposable for us. And I think the act of weaving is that pushback on the idea of a disposable life that weaving is, is difficult. It's a difficult craft mm -hmm. to do. And being able to create out of string or yarn or thread something that's usable and beautiful and, you know, reflects the maker's hand is, is such a powerful statement about this is not disposable. You know, this is something that you hold on to. And talking with brands specifically, they've gone, they've come so far away from that. You know, they're looking at, I, I mean, if you look at, um, uh, something like a Forever 21 type brand, they're looking at a weekly deliverable of new style, new clothing into their stores. Wow. So if 50 weeks out of the year, they're having to ship something to, you know, a hundred retail stores, and that means whatever comes in, something's got to come out, right? Whatever didn't sell, they now take off and take away from the store and they have to dispose of it. And whether they dispose of it through a secondary retail channel or whether they dispose of it by, um, you know, bundling it and selling it to a jobber who then sorts it and figures out what, you know, can be salvaged from it. It's still a really, um, I'd say, non-elegant response to this influx of, of clothing and the need to keep up with the pace of fast fashion. So these other brands are looking at this and saying, we can't do that. I mean, we, we cannot ethically put our name on a label knowing that in 
19 days, it's going to be headed to a landfill or headed to incineration or disposal or, you know, no good use, right? Um, all of the energy and the resources that were drawn from it are now no longer useful. And so it's waste. They can't do that. They're just like, they're saying, no, we, we won't. So how do we fix this? How do we figure out a response? And it's been fantastic just seeing what their um, ideas are. So some of the brands will just take stuff back and um, they're at the moment warehousing it because they're still trying to figure out what to do with it. Some brands that are a little bit more advanced are looking at their goods and saying, okay, so you, you tore this piece of outerwear that you bought for us from us and it costs a lot of money so we're going to offer free mending send it to us we'll mend it and um, send it back to you so now you have another you know two or three or five or ten years out of uh, life out of this product others are saying give it back to us we will do something with it and in fact um, Eileen Fisher has said we look at all the returned goods that are coming to us and saying this is the raw materials of our next production. So they're not looking at it as, oh my goodness, this is all used. They're looking at it and saying, this is a gold mine because we started with really high quality materials. Most of this stuff has been gently worn. So it's nearly new. It may not be the right color. It may not be the right cut or, um, um, size for today's fashion, but it's still perfectly good fabric. Let's do something with it. And they've actually created an entire product line that they're selling right now that is made from, uh, for, for what their current thing um, that they're doing is, um, it's made from used denim. So, hmm. you know, we all have seven pairs of jeans on average in our um, closets. And so here's all those, all that denim that, you know, from three seasons back that you bought from Eileen Fisher, but you're not wearing it anymore, they're reusing it. And uh, it's just been a stroke of genius, I think, to see how they're looking at each piece and they're not looking at it and going, okay, it's a pair of pants in size, you know, 10. Now what do we do? Because we're, we already have too many size 10s in the warehouse. It's like, no, this is raw material for something new. Um so that has been so rewarding to look at a brand and say, hey, I've been a part of that. I'm taking stuff that's got minor stains or wear on it and we're putting, you know, natural color on it and reselling it. That's great because someone else can use it or, you know, the consumer can even do this themselves if they wanted to. Um, if you've got a white linen shirt that's got a, a tea stain on the sleeve, then you can just indigo dye the thing and the tea stain just disappears because you don't see it anymore. So uh, that kind of uh, awareness and getting the consumer to look at their clothing in a new way has just been amazing. Well, Kathy, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your stories and your experience today. And I have just two closing out questions before we end. Um, the first one is where people can go to find out more about you and your work on social media and on the internet. And then the last one is if you have any final advice or words of wisdom for weavers who are intrigued about natural dyeing and want to get started. Sure. Um, so our website is botanicalcolors.com. 
and colors is spelled um, the uh, North American, um, I guess it's American spelling, C-O-L-O-R-S. And uh, our Instagram is at Botanical Colors. The advice I have for anybody who's been like contemplating this and circling the idea is to just get in there and start. Um, I have made both as a weaver and as a dyer, I have made every mistake in the book and, and then Hmm. some, and I just have to say that, um, you still get amazing results. You'll still be really pleased with what happens. Um, and you'll learn something for the next time. So just, you can't really fail is the way that I feel um, when you're working uh, on something new. And just to, as a little anecdote, I, as a new, what the thing that I did when I was learning to weave was I was also a spinner. And I decided I was going to spin yarns in order to put them on my loom. And I had a very large, very heavy, almost like a rug loom. So it was, it was a, it was a big loom. And I spun this super fine, almost cobweb type of uh, silk and I spun many 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 yards and I spent hours and warped my loom and I opened up the first shed to throw my first pass with my shuttle and I snapped every warp yarn because my loom was too heavy for my thread and I didn't have the experience to even Mm -hmm. recognize that you know I just had this idea in my head so that was a little bit like oh Um, and so after I threw my fit and, and cried, I thought, okay, I can still do this. And so I ended up tying on kind of like a, uh, support monofilament dummy warp, um, you know, kind of rethreading it and, and just having a warp that would basically hold up the, the, um, shafts of the loom so I could do my little weave structure and, I finally got it all woven, but it gave me, you know, the information like, okay, so I made a mess, but I was able to fix the mess and I still got something out of it. Um, It was good experience. And so if I can just, you know, have those types of catastrophes and keep going, so can you. That's great advice, Kathy. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to talk today. Sarah, it was totally a pleasure. I loved it. Thank you. That's a wrap. To see photos of Kathy's work, her beautiful dyes, or to purchase some natural dye kits for yourself, go to www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 33. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N.com. If you love listening to the show, would you consider kicking in $2 or $5 or 15 bucks to support us while we make it? LaShawn and I will put your donation to good use creating new episodes for you. To donate, you can go to www.gistyarn.com slash podcast and click the donate button. Thank you. Next week, we have a special episode. I'm interviewing Emma Rhodes. Emma is a textile artist and weaver, and she also works for GIST as our studio and community coordinator. On this episode, we talk all about Emma's weaving journey and also about a new kind of frame slash loom she is developing and will be sharing with our community soon. Tune in next week to hear that conversation, and until next time, happy weaving!